We're in Ruth chapter 2 this morning. We're working our way through the book of Ruth, roughly a chapter at a time. I don't want to lock myself into that, but that's the goal. Ruth is one of the most beautifully written stories in the Bible. It's one of the most beautiful romances ever written. You think about an honorable man and a humble woman who meet by chance, in quotes, if you're listening to the audio online. They meet in the unlikeliest of circumstances. They fall in love. They get married. This is indeed a romance for the ages. But the author of Ruth has established from the very beginning that this is more than the story of a romantic encounter. This story, as we saw last week, is built around the faithfulness and the providence and the sovereignty of God. You see, Naomi's prayer back in chapter 1 is that the Lord would show covenant faithfulness to her daughters-in-law. And chapter 2 is part of the answer to that request and God demonstrating his faithfulness not only to Ruth but to Naomi. You see the word of the Lord says in Exodus chapter 34 verse 6 that the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord the Lord a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's covenant faithfulness. That's hesed and faithfulness. This, this hesed, we may refer to it as that. We may refer to it as covenant faithfulness, steadfast love. We said last week that this is God's deep goodness expressed, expressed in His covenant commitment to do what He says He will do, to, act, to maintain absolute loyalty to His Word, and to act for the good of His people despite the cost to Himself. Whatever it may cost Him, he remains true and faithful to his covenant, to his word. And so the book of Ruth is a demonstration of the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God and the way he brings people to repentance. And even larger picture than that, the way he orchestrates history to bring about salvation to save sinners from their sins. So we see there then in the first few verses that God is the sovereign actor in all of this. And He's always acting consistent with His character. So if we look at the first few verses there, we see that God directs the small and the large matters of His world according to His covenant faithfulness. Look there at chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. So chapter 2 opens with a bit of a spoiler alert. We're introduced to a man named Boaz, and this sort of comes out of the blue. You know, if you might think, you know, author, if, you were, if you're going to introduce Boaz, you could have just done that like you did in chapter th or verse 3. You know, why, why move the introduction of Boaz up to the beginning of chapter 2? 
Well, when an author does this, it's, it's cluing us in that this is an important part of the narrative. It's a clue as to what is about to happen. It's like the, the opening of a romantic movie and you see, you see scenes of a guy and you see scenes of a girl and you know what's coming down the pike even though in the timeline of the movie these two have never met yet. So here's Boaz, we've already met Ruth, guess what's coming down the pike? He, he's introducing us to a character ahead of time. This is God's way of letting us know that Boaz is going to be an important part of this story moving forward. It's, almost, it's a clue to say, hey, keep an eye on this guy, Boaz. He's going to show up later, and you'll want to pay attention to this guy. He's a relative of Naomi, hint, hint. And he's a worthy man. So we get this glimpse of Boaz, who's a, who's a worthy man, and then the text moves us back to Ruth, who, who decides that she's just going to go out and she's going to work. She's going to glean grain from someone who she might find favor in their eyes. You know, she doesn't have a clue who this is. She didn't see verse 1. She doesn't know Boaz is, is out there. She just knows she's going to go into a field where a man is godly enough to obey the law of the Lord and leave some grain and barley available for somebody like her, a widow who needs some help. You see, the Lord had made provision in His law for people like Ruth and Naomi, widows who were oftentimes helpless to provide for themselves, people who were foreigners in the land like Ruth, strangers passing through who need a meal. God had made provision for them, for the orphan who needed help. In Leviticus 19.9, the law said this, to, to landowners, to, to those who were farming, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you, shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So they weren't allowed to harvest their entire field because then they would make extra bank and there wouldn't be enough left for the widow or the orphan or the foreigner. And so Ruth sets out. She's going to go to one of these fields and hopefully there's a man there that has obeyed the law of the Lord. And she just so happens to find one in verse 3. She happens upon this field, and it's the field of Boaz. Yes, the Boaz from verse 1. Yes, the Boaz that's a worthy man. Yes, the Boaz that's from the clan of Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband. So before we kind of jump down the throat of the narrator and say nothing happens by accident. What are you talking about? You know, I was eating with Dan this week, and I said, oh, Lizzie just so happened to get this job here in teaching, you know, when we moved here. And I said, now, Dan, I'm using the language of Ruth here. Don't. <laughs> Before we do that, and, you know, God is sovereign over every inch of his creation. I don't ever want to hear you say that again. We need to know what the narrator is doing here. He knows that this isn't happenstance. The Holy Spirit inspired the Word of God. I think he knew, the human author of the book of Ruth knew a lot about what, how this story was going to end. I don't, I don't know that he knew everything. 
he writes in a way to help us feel the tension between what we view as inconsequential happenstance and God's providence over the small and the big areas of life. You know, last week I made a little mistake. I told whoever did scripture reading, I told them to pray for the wrong missionary. So we had, and this was my fault, we had the wrong picture up for the missionary. And so Jordan came to small group this week. I said, Jordan, you know what? Let's just, just start over with Savannah. We'll just do that. We weren't supposed to pray for Savannah this morning, but it just, this little accident happens. And then I'm downstairs talking to John and Karen, and in comes Savannah. And I think, here's the Lord working in some providential ways to just work his little will in small and in big ways. Of course, the author knows this isn't an accident, but he wants us to feel the tension between things that we view as inconsequential and God's absolute sovereignty over all the issues of life. You know, on the one hand, Ruth isn't scheming. I think Naomi may want to scheme here a little bit at the end of chapter 2. But Ruth isn't scheming to catch Boaz. She probably has no idea about Boaz at this point. She's simply doing what she needs to do on that particular day. You know, in fact, if we think about this in light of Ruth's commitment to her mother-in-law, Naomi, we might say that Ruth is just being faithful to do what she was supposed to do that day. Her going out was part of her caring for Naomi. She could not have known what the Lord was up to in these you know, so-called coincidences. You know, I believe that, that we can learn from this idea of just being faithful over what the Lord has given us today. You know, we, we, we live in a, a world of big ideas and big decisions and big dreams for ourselves and, and for this world. And, you know, we want to go charge, you know, this world and conquer this world and we're going to change this world. And it's like, what did you do today to help you meet this goal? Oh, nothing. I think there's some, some hope for us or there's some, a challenge here for us to be faithful with what the Lord has given us today. The reality is that we most often are, are living sort of in this place where Ruth is living, inside the mysterious providence of God when we don't really understand what's going to happen down the pike, where our decisions are going to lead us. And so what the, what the Lord calls for us is to be faithful with what we have today. Because we, we don't know God's full plan for us. John Flavel, you know, Hebrew is actually written right to left, and so it's really hard to read when you're first getting into it. But John Flavel said this, the providence of God is like Hebrew words. It's best read backwards. You know, it's in looking backwards that we see, oh, here's how the, here's how the Lord was working in this. Here's what the Lord was doing. This is why this happened in this way. But in the present and in the future, much of the providence of God is mysterious to us. And if it's mysterious what he's doing right now, and if it's mysterious what he will do in the future. Now, I'm talking about very specific things about your life. He's, I certainly can say he's conforming you to the image of Christ today, and Jesus is coming back to rule and reign. Uh, you know, he, he's told us a lot about the present and a lot about the future, but in those places where he hasn't revealed to us, what he requires for us is to be faithful to what we have before us. These regular things that we can be doing daily 
like reading our Bible or serving others in our church family here, having someone in your home for a meal even, praying diligently for others. These are things we can be doing day in and day out. You know, I read a story this week where even going to work and working hard was used uh, uh, amazingly by the Lord to be a testimony to somebody and bring them to faith in Christ. You may have heard of the man. His name is Sinclair Ferguson. And he was sharing his testimony about how he came to faith in Christ. And he says, I, I went to this, you know, a little service where a, a young professional man was sharing his testimony about how he came to Christ. And this young professional says he had started at a new job, and, and at this new job, they had a little station. Now, to understand the story, we've got to go back into ancient history here. There were typewriters, three <laughs> typewriters there, and there were three typists that would sit at these typewriters, and over the first few days, he would walk by, and he noticed a consistency of work in one of the typists that he wasn't hearing in the other two, just clack, 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 always just clack and clack, clack, but by one of the typists there. And he said to, to one of his new co-workers, he said, why is it that I hear a consistency from this typist that I don't hear in the others? And his co-worker said, oh, that's so-and-so. She's a Christian. And then he walked away. And the young professional was stunned, you know, trying to figure out in his mind, what's the connection between being a Christian and, and typing, well, well, it's not typing well, it was her attitude, her demeanor, his, her consistent hard work. It was a faithful witness that, have, that led this young man to seek out, you know, what, what, it, what does it mean to be a Christian? He comes to Christ, he's sharing his testimony then, and Sinclair Ferguson comes to Christ, and Sinclair Ferguson says this. He said, I could hear the similar clacking. I do not know the identity of that typist, but it has often crossed my mind that unknown to her, the faith she so consistently expressed in her life became a link in the chain that brought me to faith. He never met her. She never met him. She doesn't have a clue. But she's just being faithful with what the Lord had given her that day. God using ordinary obedience to accomplish his extraordinary will. See, we can trust that God is, is providentially working and ordering his world. Matters large and matters small in accordance with his hesed, with his covenant faithfulness, accomplishing his will to save sinners like you and I. So we see here that God is sovereignly working in seemingly insignificant details of life to accomplish His good plan. And just, even despite the unfaithfulness, you know, we talked about this being during the days of Judges. Despite the unfaithfulness of Israel, He has come and He has visited His people. He is demonstrating His covenant faithfulness to them. He has not abandoned them. He is remaining consistent to the commitment to act for their good. And what we see then is Boaz becomes a sort of shadowy representation of the faithfulness of God. As we look at the rest of this chapter, secondly, we see that God produces His character in His people. Look there in verses, verse 4. 
And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young men, young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Boaz becomes, and we'll see other ways, we'll read, read the text here further in a moment. But Boaz becomes an example of God forming his character in his people. Now hopefully as we walk through this, we can avoid sort of moralizing the text. I don't want this to boil down to a be like Boaz type of sermon. But the text has emphasized there that Boaz is a worthy man. So we should look and we should see ways in which he fits the description of a worthy man. And we can even be challenged personally to, to similarly reflect God's character in God's world for God's glory. So we've been introduced to Boaz. We've heard about his field. We've heard that he's a relative of Elimelech. And now we finally get to meet him. The ESV says, behold. It's like, look, here's Boaz. I told you to keep an eye out for him. Uh, and now he's finally in the field. He has come to the field that Ruth has just so happened to stumble upon. And with Boaz's first words, we get our clue as to why the text might call him a worthy man. He greets his workers there in verse 5 with a blessing, the Lord be with you. And they respond, the Lord bless you. I think based on the fact that he's been described as a worthy man, based on his character throughout the rest of the book, I think we might say that this is something more than just a casual religious thing that Boaz just sort of throws out there, like after someone sneezed, Lord bless you. It's, it, it's more than that for him. This isn't just religious jargon for him. Boaz appears to be the sort of man who is God-centered even in the way that he deals with his servants and his workers. His desire for them is that they might know the Lord and that he, they might understand His covenant faithfulness. He doesn't view them as existing only for His own benefit, but desires for them to know the blessing of God and His faithfulness. For Boaz, this is likely something he said every day to his people. And this day probably began like every other day. Heads out into his fields, he greets his workers with a blessing, they return the blessing, but today there's something different because Ruth so happened to be in the field. You know, I imagine Boaz did a double take. You know, he's just walking out to his field, he sees Ruth and, ooh, looks back, sees Ruth and he says something like, who is that? Who is that woman? And he finds out that that is Naomi's daughter-in-law. You know, they, they explain, the, the leader of the reapers there explains who this is. She's calm. This is, this is the Moabite woman. You know, maybe the, maybe the servant didn't even want to refer to the Moabite woman by name. This is, this is the Moabite woman. She's come and she's asked permission to glean in the field. She's been working diligently throughout the day. See, in Boaz, a God-centeredness for his people... And then he approaches Ruth, and they begin to speak with one another. Remember the book of Ruth, it's driven by and large by dialogue. The story advances through 
characters talking with one another. So we see then in Boaz that his commitment to the Lord, his God-centeredness, leads him to love his neighbor well, secondly. So he's, he's God-centered. We might say he's also others-oriented. Boaz demonstrates that the natural consequence of loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength is that he would love his neighbor like himself. We find in him an example of what it might look like to walk in the way of the Lord. He's a wonderful picture of one who fears the Lord and all that he does. And one of the most obvious ways that we see him loving his neighbor well by loving God first is by obeying these laws concerning gleaning. By obeying God's law, he, in turn, loves his neighbor. You know, what we see in Boaz, as far as we can tell, is not him trying to wiggle out from underneath the law of the Lord like a Pharisee might say. Well, what's, what's the least amount I can get away with and give to this foreigner but still, you know, serve myself in this. He's not asking how little he can do. In fact, he sends Ruth home packed. So Boaz, as a man who owns this land and has servants in his household, he's a man who has authority. He's a man who has been given control. And you know, today we live in a culture and in a world where all authority is viewed as, as a power grab. It's something that, that, that's used to abuse and harm others. Authority can only use, be used for harm. So those in authority must, must give it up, must divest themselves of authority. But in Boaz, what we see is that authority is given by God and to be used for His glory and for the good of others. Ephesians 5 and 6 speak clearly to this. If you want to look there and see, all right, well, what authority do I have and how should I wield the authority that God has given me? If you want to sum it up, you would say husbands, parents, bosses, take up your God-given authority. Take up the authority that the Lord has given you. Do not, do not abandon the responsibilities that the Lord has given you. Don't wield your authority then. As you take it up, do not wield it to serve yourself, but wield it to serve others for the glory of God. Love God above all else and love your neighbor as yourself. And so for Boaz, he loved others by not harvesting every square inch of his field in obedience to the word of the Lord so that a foreigner like Ruth might have something to eat while she's in the promised land where the Lord provides for his people. You know, as this text then develops and Ruth and Boaz begin to talk, we also see that Boaz takes up his authority in the way that he serves Ruth. Look in verses 8 through 16 as they talk to one another. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young man not to touch you? And when, they, and when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, 
All that you have done with your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied. She had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. I hope you noticed in the first few verses there that Boaz first seeks to protect Ruth. He tells her not to go to another field. Instead, work next to my female servants who are also out there in the field. You know, during, during the time of harvest, it, was, it would have been all hands on deck. His male servants are out in the field. His female servants come out into the field, and they are working together. And Boaz is not naive as to what his male servants may try to do to Ruth. So he warns them. He warns them not to touch her. Don't mess with her. Don't harm her. He encourages Ruth and to, to remain here. You'll be, you'll be safe here. Because I've warned my young men not to touch you, not to harm you. Here you can work safely. Again, Boaz is sort of a a shadowy representation of the Lord that he loves. Remember the way that um, he described Ruth's conversion down in verse 12. You have come under the wings of the Almighty. You found refuge and you found safety under the wings of the God of Israel. See, she has come to the Lord. She has found refuge and safety there from the consequences of her sin. The Lord is a place of refuge and safety. He is mighty to save all those who turn from their sin and come to Him for forgiveness. He alone, through Christ, can shelter us from the fierce judgment that we deserve. That's what uh, Ruth has come under the wings, the shadow of the Almighty. She's found refuge in God. And in a small way, a a, a very small way compared to what the Lord has done, Boaz seeks to shelter Ruth and to protect her in the way that he cares for her. So he protects her. Boaz also seeks to provide for Ruth. In verse 9, he he tells her where she can find water. In verses 14 through 16, he invites her to lunch and and gives her so much roasted grain that she she is fully satisfied and she has leftovers. You see their first date there, and Boaz is doing well, providing above and beyond. In verse 17, he sends Ruth home with with an overabundance of food, an ephah of barley. That would have been about 30 pounds of food. He's providing for her. He's making sure that her and Naomi are taken care of. Boaz protects, Boaz provides Boaz, in general, we might just say he respects Ruth. He considers her needs above his own. He thinks of her relationship to the Lord. He views her as someone who is in relationship to the Lord. He sees Ruth as someone who has come to know God through God's grace and kindness 
and calling Ruth to himself. He honors her and her faithfulness to Naomi. It's no wonder as you read chapter 2 that Boaz is called a worthy man. You know, there's a real beauty, I think, in Boaz's care and protection, respect and provision. There's a, there's a beauty in the way that this man lives as a man in relation to another woman. We shouldn't be surprised because this is God then producing hesed, faithfulness, favorability in his man Boaz. He's just simply reflecting the character of God. You know, as much as we joke about toxic masculinity and that gets decried in our world, and there are real ways that men can be real ugly when we selfishly serve ourselves instead of others. But, you know, as much as masculinity is under attack, here we see a wonderful example of the glory of God and his design for how a man should live and his design for men. And I know that this is this application is why we joke, Jeff and I have joked before, it's like low-hanging fruit. It's like, it's just, it's, that's the easy application. I know this might be called low-hanging fruit, but it's here for us, so let's, let's take it for a second. Let me, let me just say this. For you young ladies in the church, when it comes time to date, when you're ready to start thinking about who will I marry, what kind of man do I want to marry, what will he look like? Find a man that loves God above all else and who loves his neighbor as himself. Find a man who emulates the covenant faithfulness of the God that he loves and serves. Listen, here's reality. We put our, we do this, we put our best foot forward in dating. We put our best foot forward. You know, I was listening to Paul Tripp one time and he said, a, he, he was doing some marriage counseling and and the lady said, this is not the man I married. And he's told her, this is the man you married. The man you dated doesn't exist. <laughs> okay, we put our best foot forward when we date. If you don't see a love for Christ, a love for others, a willingness to protect and to respect and to honor those around him, including you, then it's not going to change the day you say, I do. And to you young men, I would encourage you, be the type of man that loves God above everything else. I know how powerful the pull of the flesh is to want to use others instead of love and serve them and to protect them. The deceitfulness of the flesh is that they exist for your gain and for your pleasure. I would encourage you to dedicate yourself to the Lord and to be one who emulates the covenant faithfulness of God, who provides and protects those around him and serves those who walk in faithfulness to the will of the Lord. You know, the reality is we, we are pulled to either abuse our authority. You know, I'm still talking to young men. Like, we are, we are called to either not called, tempted to either abuse our authority where we use others for our own gain or we're tempted to abdicate authority and just not take it up and to be passive in everything that we do. Well, here we see an example of a man who acts for the good of others and for the glory of God. Let's pursue that. 
Ruth is not the only, or Boaz is not the only example here. Ruth is also found, I, I believe, reflecting God's character in ways. She possesses a meek and a quiet spirit. She demonstrates her humility before Boaz in verse 10 when we hear the first words she speaks to Boaz. Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me? Now those are actually, oddly enough, the first words that Liz ever said to me when we met. Not really, I was more like Boaz. Who is that? I remember my roommate in college said, who are you going to ask to go to the Christmas program thing that our school put on every year. I said, I think I'm going to ask Liz. And he said, I don't think I've ever heard you talk to Liz. And I said, I haven't. <laughs> but Ruth here is, is humble. You know, she doesn't have this demeanor. It's about time you took notice of me. She's not demanding that, that she has a right to this field. She's humble and she's meek and she's, she's got a quiet spirit. She appreciates God's goodness and is thankful for his provision. She's out there working hard to serve others and trusting the Lord that he will provide through his covenant faithfulness. God is producing his character in his people. And for us this morning, that's what God is up to. God glorifies himself by producing his character in his people. See, we are absolutely, the reason we're not saying be like only saying be like Boaz is because it's God's grace that produces this character in us. See, we were made to be, we were made in the image of God and we were made to reflect God's character and in nature to the world and to fulfill his mission for the world. But in sin entering, it marred that image. We remain in the image of God, but we certainly don't reflect his character to the world. We didn't live like him. We didn't demonstrate his character. We didn't produce his character in us. And so with sin, we don't love God above all else. We don't love our neighbor well. We don't love our neighbor as ourselves. We selfishly love and find ways to serve ourselves and live for our own glory. And only through Christ, only through Christ, is there a way for us to be made right with God and Jesus, about, I think this book of Hebrews says, saves to the uttermost. He's able to save us to the uttermost. He doesn't just forgive us. He doesn't just wipe our slate clean. In fact, what he does is he begins to fix what was broken at the fall. He begins to conform us and to transform us back into the image of Christ that was broken when sin flooded into this world. And one day we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. What is God up to? Well, his plan might be mysterious. His will is revealed. He's conforming his people to the image of Christ. And it's a beautiful thing to be like the Savior. It's a glorious thing to be like the Savior. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And this is by the Spirit, Paul says. It's through the work of God that we might be conformed to Christ, not if we just buckle down and become better. And so that leads us to our last point this morning, point number three. God provides through a righteous representative. Look in verse, verses 18 through the end of the chapter. Well, I'll start in 17 there. So she gleaned in the field until evening, 
Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw that she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Beside, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So to Naomi's surprise, here comes Ruth home after a long day of work. Maybe she's hoping that Ruth has enough to make it through the next day. And here comes Ruth with 30 pounds of food on her back and some leftovers from lunch. We don't want to miss this because Naomi is still an important part of the story. There's, you know, as I was reading and preparing, there are people that were saying, you know, they could call this the book of Naomi. She's almost as much a main character as, as Ruth. And so Ruth and Boaz, really Boaz's provision and protection, the way he serves, and Ruth's faithfulness in going out and trying to serve Naomi, they become the means by which God fills up Naomi's arms. She said, I went away empty, or I went away full, and I came back empty. She, she, she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Lord has, bought, has dealt bitterly with me. So you can imagine, Ruth, 30 pounds, I mean the shopping cart's hard to push when it's got 30 pounds in it. 30 pounds on her, on her back. You can see her handing that off to Naomi and say, oh, I've got leftovers here as well. When you, the, the one who came back empty cannot hold all that the Lord has put into her arms. And God's going to do more. He's going to do something way bigger than this as we move towards the end of the book. So the Lord is kind to Naomi. He's demonstrating his covenant faithfulness to her as well. And for those of us who can identify more clearly with Naomi's faithlessness than we can the faithfulness of Boaz and the faithfulness of Ruth, this is such a sweet truth. That God is faithful to Naomi, that he would bless her and that he would fill her back up despite her bitterness and her faithlessness. You see, we said last week, it's it's when we wander, it's the kindness of the Lord that draws us back to him. The Lord is actually answering Naomi's prayer from back in chapter 1. That's another example of God's faithfulness to Naomi. She said, may the Lord demonstrate hesed to to Ruth. And here it is. God is being kind to both of them. The Lord has heard her prayer and is answering her prayer. And so naturally, Naomi is quite curious. You know, where, where have you been all day? Where did you go today? Blessed is this man who, who took notice of you. Look at what he sent you, sent you home with. Blessed is the man who showed you hesed, who showed you faithfulness. Or dealt kindly with you. Blessed is the man who acted for your good. 
So Ruth says, well, actually, his name is Boaz. And you can tell as the story develops, this sort of piques uh, Naomi's interest a bit. You know, her mind kicks into high gear. You know, if you, if you study the Hebrew really closely, it translates to something like, you know he's single, right? <laughs> Not really. She, she, but she does point out. Remember, we talked about this law of the kinsman redeemer, or the, the law of leveret marriage last week that's, that was part of the old covenant. It was a provision for a woman who was married, and, and her husband dies, and she's left childless. And, and so the next closest single relative would marry her not only to provide for her but to have a child that would pass on the lineage of the deceased man okay it's different from our culture it's certainly different now under the new covenant for us but it was part of God's provision for a family line and it was part of God's provision for a widowed woman and so Naomi sort of getting some gears turning in her mind, like, hmm, Boaz is taking care of you. You know he is one of our redeemers, she says. And so we'll definitely talk more and more about this idea of a kinsman redeemer as we get into the coming chapters. But for now, I want us to consider um, Boaz, who unbeknownst to him, will become the great-grandfather of King David. And Boaz becomes a sort of prototype, a sort of picture of what the king in Israel should be like. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, Moses anticipated what a king in Israel should look like, what they should be like. He said that a king should have a copy of the law and that they should read the law all the days of their life and that they should keep and obey the law of the Lord. They should not be pride-filled and lifted up amongst their brothers. And what we see in Boaz is a picture of a godly man that the king is meant to be. That his, his line will eventually result in a king for Israel. And so it's appropriate then that Boaz is an example of what the king should look like. We said last week that, that the book of Ruth is sort of a bridge between the book of Judges where there is no king. Every man does what is right in his own eyes and there's no king. And then in 1 Samuel, Israel demands king. In chapter 8, they, they get a king. And Ruth is sort of the bridge. So it's appropriate then that Boaz is here as a model for what a king might be like. And so one of the ways that we see God working out his sovereign plan of redemption is that he would bring a king to Israel through the line of Boaz. A good king. Not Israel's first king, but a good king in King David. But we know, as those who have read the Bible, that these kings would not obey the law of the Lord. Even the good kings. Even the good kings would fall far short of living and ruling according to God's will and living according to the law all the days of their life. Even these kings fell short. Even Boaz's provision, as, as much as it reflects the character of the Lord he loves, it's a, it's a temporary provision. It's a temporary provision. Um, blessing. See, what we needed, not only Israel, but what we needed was a different sort of king, one who would meet our greatest need, the forgiveness of sin. We needed a king who could put down the rebellion of sin and rule and reign in righteousness. 
And Isaiah 32 says, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. We needed a king that was characterized completely by hesed, by covenant faithfulness. And in the beginning, we read that definition of covenant faithfulness, and it characterizes Christ. It's God's deep goodness expressed in his covenant commitment, his absolute loyalty, his obligating of himself to bring to fruition the blessings that he has promised, whatever it may cost him to do it. Whatever it costs, he will be faithful. We find that only in King Jesus. He is the substance, to borrow a language from Colossians. He is the substance of which Boaz is the shadow. Jesus humbled himself as king of the universe, humbled himself and, take, and took on the form of a servant even to the point of death, Paul says. But in his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father, he has been given the name above every name. He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He will return to this earth to establish his kingdom and his righteous rule. Again, Isaiah 32 says, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and we long for that day when Christ rules and reigns from the throne of David. Let's pray together. Father, again, we need humility to hear your word. We need the Holy Spirit to work on our behalf. And Lord, we pray that we'd be glorified in you in the way that we do receive your word and repent of our sins, trusting that our righteousness is not in ourselves, but it's in Christ, and being motivated by that truth to live unto your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.